This podcast was made with Descript. Descript is a groundbreaking new media tool that allows creators to edit audio and video like a text document and create a realistic clone of their own voice for seamless edits. Please check out our Patreon at Asian Hustle Network. We want Asians to continue being meaningful and give back to the Asian community. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to our feature, we hope you become a patron. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hey guys, welcome to Asian Hustle Network Podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And today we have a very special guest, Kuhn Gao, the co-founder of Crunchyroll. Kuhn, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Definitely. We're super excited to have you here. Huge fans ever since we were young kids. We watch a lot of anime, like no lie. So much anime, you know. And having Crunchyroll come out, it's a huge... I would say it's a huge integration in my own childhood growing up. I constantly refer to Crunchyroll whenever I need to look for new inspiration, new anime, especially watching Bleach and Naruto. I couldn't find anywhere else to watch it, you know? So I always went to Crunchyroll. And it's been a huge part of our culture. So super happy to, to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having, uh, thanks for taking this time to, to be on the podcast, Kuhn. It was my pleasure. Definitely. So Kuhn, uh, can you kind of tell us a little bit about who you are, what your upbringing was like, uh, where'd you grow up, and we want to learn a lot more about you. Sure. I was born in uh, China, Beijing actually, mm-hmm. moved to the U.S. in Houston when I was eight, mm-hmm. then to L.A. when I was 11 for middle school and high school, undergrad UC Berkeley, and a few years of grad school at Carnegie Mellon, mm-hmm. uh, upbringing... I think pretty uh, typical immigrant story, moved to the U.S., having to learn English, having to really try to fit in, and uh, just, you know, growing up, uh, remembering, and just, uh, you know, life, life was pretty, you know, very much very interesting, but very different, uh, mm-hmm. and, and just, I think as an immigrant, you always have a chip on your shoulder, you always, you're always pushed to, to excel by your parents, uh, mm-hmm. to use uh, hard work and dedication and just uh, academic achievements to, 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 to uh, grow and to prosper. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's amazing. Can you talk a little bit about your upbringing and your childhood? You know, what your parents were like, you know, were you living in a strict Asian household or were they kind of like laissez-faire? Yeah. Oh, very, very strict. <laughs> very typical Asian. Very typical typical. Asian. That's, that's right. My parents were super supportive to get me excited about science and math. And mm-hmm. uh, I think they, you know, they, 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 they really aspired for me to be a doctor. And yeah. uh, I think at a certain point, uh, I really wanted to be an engineer, which was totally mm-hmm. fine as well. I think those are the two choices, doctor <laughs> and maybe lawyer. Lawyer is okay too. Uh, and, and then uh, with 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 engineering, it was just uh, you know pushing me to participate in science fairs and to have you know um, academic achievement, and then pushing me to uh, go to the best engineering schools, which is why you know I applied and, and got into got into Berkeley. Yeah. And uh, it was just uh, you know I have very very fond very fond memories, and I, I think a lot of the things that. Uh, was instilled in me, especially the hard work aspect is something that 
I really lean, leaned on in the later years mm-hmm. in, in grad school or uh, in, uh, in entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, that's pretty amazing too, because I think growing up, I think we all felt the kind of pressure, right, from our mm-hmm. parents. Hey, I want you to be a doctor, lawyer. My parents actually wanted me to be a dentist. And the reason <laughs> being is that my mom always told me, you're not smart enough to be a businessman, so you should be, you should be a dentist. <laughs> you know? And it's crazy because, you know, at the time growing up, you're like, man, why, my, why is my parents so strict? But when you get an opportunity to, like, showcase your abilities and your hard work, the foundation they help you set as a child, as a young person growing up, it creates that foundation for you to draw on for experiences when you're hitting hardships, when you're hitting roadblocks, you know? So whatever... It's maybe because I'm getting older in my 30s now. So I'm thinking about, wow, like my, maybe my parents were right. <laughs> they were so strict on me that it, it turned out for the better, you know? But at the same time, listening to your story about you going to your entrepreneurial path is inspirational, inspirational for our newer generation because a lot of us don't want to follow that conventional path. Like we have to be engineers, we have to be lawyers, we have to be doctors. We don't have to necessarily come, go down that path. There's more options now. We, we have passion, you know? And it feels like the company that you built, Crunchyroll, is built on passion. Yeah. You know? And that's what we want to highlight in this podcast, you know? It's awesome. Yeah. And I think it's amazing that you did follow your passion because a lot of parents, like you said, your parents wanted you to become a doctor, right? And we see that within every Asian household, like either a doctor or a lawyer, something very stable. And we see that a lot because a lot of our parents are immigrants and they come from times of war and they want us to have a job that's very stable, right? But they don't understand like there's a lot of different ways we can make money now and we're living in such a digital world exactly. that it's hard for them to grasp onto it. But once you do show them like, hey, I can make money, you know, doing Crunchyroll and like putting out anime shows, mm-hmm. like it, that's when they're like, oh, that's really interesting. Definitely. Yeah. So walk us through your career before December 2007. We'll save that for later. <laughs> well, before 2007, I graduated Berkeley in 04. Mm-hmm. And this was right, you know, right after the dot-com bust. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't really many, many job opportunities out, out there. And either you go work at Microsoft or, or you go to academia. Yeah. And um, I personally didn't feel like I wanted to just join the workforce immediately. I thought mm-hmm. there was just a lot more I wanted to learn. And so I, I applied to grad school. Mm-hmm. And I got into into Carnegie Mellon and wow. specializing in uh, you know, PhD in computer science, specializing in uh, like programming language and, and database um, and and, and um, scalable systems. Mm-hmm. And before before I went to Carnegie Mellon that summer, I had a I had a, I had a choice. It was either to take an internship at VMware, mm-hmm. which was a, a hot startup back in the day. Now it's a huge company. Or to go to this very small startup that people might, might not recognize today. Uh, it's called Hot or Not, mm-hmm. uh, and the founders of the the Hot or Not used to be Berkeley uh, Eeks alum, and yeah. so they were recruiting on campus. And they just they 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 pitched me and said, "Look, you're you're only going to get this opportunity once in a lifetime to, to just go work at a real startup and to see what a startup life is like. And yeah. you can always go back to VMware, you know, whenever. So I said, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I, I did an internship for three months at Hot or Not. And that's when I really learned, uh, learned how to be you know, a product engineer, learn how to launch 
with product market fit and and really this was web 1. when was web 1.0 and so i think that was really when uh what what i learned the lesson there was it's actually not hard to build a startup a web startup mm-hmm. especially if you're an engineer with a little bit of product sense you right. can literally code it all yourself mm-hmm. and and so just seeing that it's actually not difficult and the challenge that people really have is most people don't know how straightforward it is or aren't willing to take the risk. Mm-hmm. I think that's been a huge, um, that was a huge learning. And so <laughs> after, after that internship, I, I uh, continued on to grad school. Mm-hmm. And uh, about six months into grad school, this was in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. It was snowing and it was just depressing <laughs> and there was no sun. And I, I just thought, <laughs> man, this kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the the, the the faculty were great the, the campus was great but um, in, if you go to academia typically you're, you're doing research for uh, many years you're focusing on one topic that maybe you could write a dissertation on that 20-30 people in the world can really appreciate yeah. and I just I wanted to do something that I hopefully millions of people can appreciate mm-hmm. and so that's when I started in Pittsburgh my first company Mm-hmm. Uh, with all the lessons and, and, the, and the skills that I picked up uh, at the Hotaran internship. And mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of how my, uh, my entrepreneurship career really began. Mm-hmm. Wow, wow that's, that's really inspirational. Yeah. You know? It's the fact that you had, you know, it's crazy how life works, right? You know, you, you built up your experience in the startup field. It's really opened up your horizon and be like, yo, this is possible. Like, I can do this, you know? Mm-hmm. I think for most people, when they first start out, is not visualizing, not, not properly visualizing themselves and realize that they themselves can do it. And that's mm-hmm. a huge roadblock for a lot of us because what happens with our generation, generations younger, is that given the opportunity between a startup and a more established company, our parents would push us towards an established company. You, know, you yeah. guys go here, stable job. What are, you, what are you complaining about? It's a stable company, you know? But you took that risk. You came to a startup, and that led to a whole foundation of where you are right now, you know? And entrepreneurship. It's, it's, it's fantastic to hear this story because mm-hmm. I would say, given the two choices that you have, you know, like we said before, 80% will be on the safe side, but you went on the entrepreneurial side. So we really yeah. like hearing this and we want more listeners to hear this story. Take these risks while you're still young. And it's, it's like really reassuring to hear you say that it's actually really easy to start a startup, right? Because a lot of people may think, oh, I can never do that. You know, mm-hmm. that requires so many people, you know, um, that requires a lot of work, but you know, you yourself, you're an engineer. And even if you aren't an engineer, you could always hire people, right? Or meet people. Yeah. Or meet people. Yeah. And it's all in your network. And it's just really refreshing to hear you say that, that it's really easy to actually start a startup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. then again, it's, it's cool, you know, so it makes everything <laughs> sound a little bit easy. <laughs> no, I think, I think it's something that anyone can do. And, and I think that it just takes passion and it takes persistence and you, you have to you have to assume that if you are joining the workforce you're you're putting your productivity out there for someone else to hire to pay you uh, for your productivity mm-hmm. they're not doing it as a charity they're they're doing it because yeah. they think they were going to get more out of you than literally the dollars that they're paying you yeah, so exactly. in in a sense you are you are undervalued right yeah. with respect to any job you take there is an aspect where you are being undervalued and so how do you properly value yourselves well i think it's just making sure that you 
you get all of the upside. Mm -hmm. And part of that is you have to deal with the downside. Uh, what if you're not successful? What if the idea you're working on is not, you know, the right idea? Uh, and, you know, there, there's, there's plenty of ways that that can be addressed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually the number one role as an entrepreneur is to, to, to mitigate downside risk and, and, up, uh, and, and increase, increase upside. Uh, entrepreneurs aren't looking to do this to, to get into the most risky thing ever. Like they're, they're not, we're, we're not in the business of, of, of creating risk and jumping into risk. We're in the business of, of maximizing upside and minimizing downside. Right. And so um, I, I just think there's it, it, to your point though, like it is something that's a lot easier to do when, when you're younger, uh, when you don't have a family, so you don't have to necessarily worry about, balancing trade-offs. Um, and it's, it's certainly something that you can definitely do very well when, yeah. when you have a family, when you have trade-offs, but it's just so much easier to take the, the jump into all of the risk and the reward when you're younger. Yeah, well, that's, that's pretty darn inspirational. Yeah. So after you started your first company, what happened with that company that was the biggest learning lesson from that? And how did you apply it to make Crunchyroll so successful? The, the first company was just, I think, a test in, in product market fit. We launched quite a few ideas. Uh, we launched an idea around um, a, a LinkedIn type of a service mm -hmm. and uh, shared it with our friends. It didn't take off. And, you know, we weren't, we weren't discouraged. We were mm -hmm. like, well, it's, and it was myself and two other, two other founders. Uh, one was a technical founder like me, a co-founder, and the other was more of a business-oriented uh, co-founder. Mm -hmm. uh, and the next idea we tried was we wanted to build a, a, a calendar app. Uh, basically, back then, there wasn't, um, there wasn't such a thing as like responsive UI. Mm -hmm. And every, every action you take on a web page costs the web page to have to reload and refresh. Right. And so right when we, right when we um, launched this calendar application was right when Microsoft first released uh, the, the, you know, the, the uh, background requests for HTML. So you could mm -hmm. write requests that updated the web page without having the web page to reload. And mm -hmm. so what we built was we built kind of like a Google calendar where you can create calendar events. And we thought that was the coolest thing ever. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were competing with other companies who were just trying to do this in the space. And it was, it was useful. It was growing, but not, not that quickly. And so after a few months, we were like, okay, let's try something else. And so we pivoted to the next idea, which mm -hmm. was building on a social layer on top of Google Maps. And Google Maps just opened up their API then. And um, I remember we hacked together the app in like a weekend. And it was just mm -hmm. create a map and share this link with your friends and your friends can add themselves to a pen on the map. And mm -hmm. we launched it and then within a week, it just, it just blew up. And so I think the, the lesson is just be persistent, uh, mm -hmm. do product market fit test really quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, if it doesn't work in a couple of weeks or a couple of months, try a different idea. And I don't think uh, that's, this is one of the big secrets about entrepreneurship. It doesn't matter how many times you try an idea and, and, and it doesn't work. It just matters if you try an idea and it works once and then you're, you're successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that's a, that in itself is also a really good story, you know, because yeah. I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs out there would, especially new ones, we get kind of discouraged because yeah. I think for our, our culture, we're not really used to failing. They're like, oh yeah, I've got straight A's and like really, <laughs> really good school. And all of a sudden like you fail, you know, and most people do take that pretty personally and they can't mm -hmm. recover from it. 
And like you said, like you said before, all you need is one. You know, keep throwing ideas out there, but just don't throw it out there. You have to have some sort of plan. strategic mm-hmm. plan, yeah. you know, and just just be prepared too. And it also comes back to thinking bigger. You know, like you have to en- envision yourself and think bigger. Like, what would happen if this actually blew up? You have to kind of picture yourself in the process because if it comes too quickly, you're not really sure how to deal with that, then the company was, will not grow as quickly. You know, like you mm-hmm. can't scale as fast because you weren't mentally ready for it. You know, oh my God, so much decisions to make. So keep in mind that you have to think big, be able to pivot. Like you mentioned before, find the product market fit. Ultra important. Every single founder mm-hmm. that we had in the podcast talked yeah. about how important it is to find the product market fit. Yeah. If you find it, you seize the moment, you know, and you make it grow. And exactly what you guys did. Like you found it, you seized it. So kind of walk us through like the, the humble beginnings of, of Crunchyroll now. I know you guys started in December 2007 and other, your other interviews that we watched, you know, you traveled to Japan to figure out the licensing in 2008. So we want to listen to like the very humble beginnings. Yeah. And love to know like how did you meet each and every one of the co-founders and how did that inspiration draw between all of you guys together? Mm-hmm. So... With my first startup, we uh, we were uh, acquired by a company in in the Bay Area, and so that's when I moved from Pittsburgh to uh, back to back to the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think at that time, one entrepreneurship wasn't really as embraced as it is today. Mm-hmm. And and two, I would say my parents my parents were you know, born in China and certainly the Chinese entrepreneurship market wasn't really there yeah. at that time. So the, the people's thinking about what entrepreneurship means and, you know, you're starting doing a startup and all that is, is a little bit different. Right. And so um, the first, I remember one of the first things my parents said was uh, after I sold my company for like millions of dollars, they were like, Mm-hmm. So uh, you're going to go back to grad school, right? I'm like, uh, <laughs> no. I, maybe, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't think about, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, but um, I, I think so, so that with that, I moved to, to the Bay area and um, started working at the company that acquired us, which uh, was called slide uh, founded by the former um, CTO of PayPal. Uh, and during that process, uh, just back in the Bay Area, reconnected with friends, mostly from from Berkeley days, and we got together and we said, "Hey, why don't we just throw some ideas on the wall and see what sticks?" And so, about a year in, this was closer to end of 2006, mm-hmm. uh, we just started coding and tooling on ideas, and we're all engineers, and we all had plenty of like stupid ideas that we can throw against the wall, and so we just started uh, trying out uh, ideas. And and one of them was, can we you know can we build a video site? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Part, part of it was was really just the, the the technical like challenge of building a video site because mm-hmm. back in two thousand six there wasn't really technology you can get you can take off the shelf. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to encode video, you literally had to build a Linux box and install FFmpeg and tweak it yourself and mm-hmm. all of that. Uh, there wasn't really a great way of serving video. There wasn't a great way of like distributing it. And so we had to figure all that out. And yeah. this was right when YouTube started taking off as well. And so video was kind of the, the, the craze everyone wanted to do. Yeah. And so we built a really simple video uh, sharing website. We shared it with our friends and um, they just, they happened to upload a lot of Asian content they couldn't normally watch in the U S. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how, uh, 
that's the kind of the early days of Crunchyroll, as well as uh, you know getting back, reconnecting with friends from Berkeley, and and just mm-hmm. keeping all that off. Yeah, wow. that's that's really cool. You guys yeah. really solved a big market need. Yeah, definitely. I, prior to 2006, I mean, prior to Crunchyroll in 2007, 2008. I was one of those people that used to torrent all the animes um, from Japan because I couldn't find a website to watch it, you know? Because yeah. there wasn't any legitimate sources. You kind of just kind of kind of guess like what episode to download and hope that it doesn't give you a virus. I know, you would go to like random, I remember going to random websites and like hoping that I wouldn't download a virus onto my HP laptop. So, and then like Crunchyroll, like I discovered Crunchyroll. It was like the only thing that was like so seamless and like the quality was good. Yeah. And, you know, the, everything was just like very organized. And the most ironic thing is when you're searching the web to download these, these animes illegally, that's when Crunchyroll came up. Yeah. <laughs> you know? like, what is this? What yeah. is this platform, you know? So that's how I discovered it at least like 2008, yeah. like 2009. It was yeah. like when I was looking for for different ways to watch my favorite animes. <laughs> and that's kind of um, one of the things that I, I think really resonated with me. Uh, certainly yeah. every entrepreneur is different. Some entrepreneurs are really good at identifying problems out in the market and, and, and solving them. Uh, for, for me, how I really approach these problems is I'm really trying to solve a problem for myself. Like mm. I, if, if, if I doesn't solve a problem for myself, then I, I'm, I might not be as passionate or I might not care right. as much yeah. uh, or I might not even know the use case or why the problem needs to be solved or deserves to be solved. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the problems that I later encounter, including Crunchyroll is just a problem that I personally have. And, and like mm-hmm. you, uh, my friends and I would just wait until Naruto launches every week and it would be like, I don't know, 3 a.m. in the morning. And then we're like <laughs> waiting for that torrent to drop and, and we're like, okay, the first time the dro- it drops, it's like one uploader and like 5,000 downloaders and everyone's kind of stuck waiting for it. Right. You don't know if you're going to get a virus or not. And uh, it's, just a, it's just a shitty experience. And so we said, this, this has to be better. Clearly you can stream video on the internet. So why isn't anime and other premium content streamed in the same way? You could just press one click and the minute it's available on TV in Japan, it's available on the, on the internet. So uh, that was a problem that we had. That was yeah. a problem our friends had, and that was a problem that uh, I think a lot of people had. We just didn't know it at the time, and uh, I think that that's the problem that Crunchyroll will solve. Yeah, I think that's really important because if you yourself, you know, the co-founders have that same problem, and your audience recognizes that you guys see that as a problem, then they will be able to see that passion through your perspective, right? If they can tell that you are not passionate about it, then obviously your customers aren't going to be passionate about it. So that's really important yeah. for the co-founders to have that passion, to have that fire mm-hmm. so that they know what it is that they need to solve, right? Yeah, yeah. it kind of draws in parallel with how we started Asian Hustle Network. We wanted to find a community where Asian people would support each other, you know? And we couldn't really find that. Like, we were looking around, like, online. We couldn't really find, like, a community where people selflessly want to help each other. And to fit our person, it sounds kind of weird. To fit our personal needs, we created the Asian Hustle Network because we wanted to hear more stories of people like yourself, like us, who are just starting out. Because what we realized talking to our friends is that we all feel lonely in this process because you don't know who else is doing it. And if I were just starting out and I hear about about you, I'll be like, man, this guy's Superman. Like he must have came from a super rich family, 
parents super supportive. I can't be like him, you know? And just having you break down your story to the very beginning shows us, hey, we do have this common ground that we can listen to each other and help each other. And one of the bigger inspiration that, very similar to you, we love Japan, you know, like we love Japanese culture. And when we, when we were in Japan, we were at the shrine in Tokyo and we're reading everyone's story tablets on the wall. We wanted to bring that inspiration back because we knew that it was going to be, be good for our community. So we, so we had a format in Asian Hustle Network where everybody shared their story, you know, like where you guys come from, what do you do? And we found, ironically, we found our product market fit, <laughs> you know, and it grew exponentially. So very similar story to your humble beginnings and ours is because you, you found that product market fit based on what you, you felt was needed. And we did the same uh, with Asian Hustle Network. So it's glad, glad to know that history does repeat itself. And the way you tell your story is like, oh, we did made the right decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's yeah. awesome. So you know, as you were, let's trace back a little bit. Did you raise funding for your first company or did you, did, it was all bootstrap and what's, what's your, what's your view on like bootstrapping towards and raising money? The first company was bootstrap. I think we raised a little bit from, from angels, but we didn't, we didn't really need the money. Um, and, and obviously with Crunchyroll, we, we raised series A and then mm-hmm. B and, and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. I think it just, it just really depends uh, either whether you need the financing to really accelerate your growth or, mm-hmm. or if you don't, there's plenty of businesses that I think are, are great as bootstrap businesses, mm-hmm. ones that aren't necessarily as capital intensive, mm-hmm. ones that uh, you, you don't necessarily need to make a lot of fixed cost investments, mm-hmm. ones that are in spaces where there aren't competitors that have a lot of money uh, to, to, to compete. Uh, so, so like there's, there's plenty of reasons to both do both. I think it's just something you have to work through what makes sense for, for the, uh, for, for the entrepreneur. And, and when you, uh, and there's certainly trade-offs when, when you're taking in someone else's money, mm-hmm. you obviously want to do right by them. You want to make sure that there's a you know, return on their investment. You want to make sure that there's a good outcome for them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the first people who invest are friends and family and then, and then your, your, uh, your institutional investors, uh, definitely having investors forces you to be in growth mode. Um, at least back then, maybe now that there's a shift more towards profitability, Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but also I think it it adds a lot more, uh, adds a a, a bit more of a discipline, at least for, at least for me, because when you're bootstrapping, it's just you and you can kind of do whatever you want. (laughs) When, when you have a formal board, then you need to uh, just, you need to, st- you need to level up your game in certain respects. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're still doing the same thing, but you do need to think about uh, how to uh, message to investors, how to manage your board, how to get the most out of them mm-hmm. and how to think about the growth of the company, not just in terms of absolute growth, but also growth as relates to dilution and uh, cap uh, and, and cap table and, and, those, those kinds of things. Yeah. Cause I, I know, you know, when you first started out Crunchyroll is, is mainly to stream video, but you found a business model that worked. Can you kind of walk us through like how you explored the different business models? Cause I, I think uh, one of the bigger challenges that most people face is, you know, when you have a, a strong fan base, you have a strong mm-hmm. community that really believes in your vision 
most times it doesn't exactly translate to monetary reasons and yeah. you know getting people to like donate and buy into your subscriptions is extremely hard what was your what was your initial challenge with Crunchyroll and getting subscribers to like believe in you guys and start you know paying you guys for your service mm-hmm. so this was one of the at least in the early days this was one of the biggest challenges for us was how do we make make the business side work uh we we, we know there's a lot of people who love anime yeah. uh, that's already clear because there's plenty of people watching anime before we arrived mm-hmm. what we don't know is were they willing to pay for anime and if you look at the the audience before Crunchyroll, there's certainly plenty of people who buy home video dvds or go to theatrical to watch or watch on TV with ad support, but it wasn't clear there would be a subscription uh, subscriber audience. And I think the naysayers at the time were like, oh, these are just anime pirates. Like they're never gonna pay you. The minute you put up a subscription, they're just gonna go somewhere else, right? Like uh, I I think we we never bought, we never accepted that. We just knew that if you're really passionate about something and there's a reason and a value to being, to being a subscriber or to, or to paying for for service. And you, I think you will. Right. And with, with Crunchyroll and, and generally I would say entertainment, mm-hmm. people love entertainment and entertainment. If you think about it, is is so inexpensive. You're talking about the price of a big Mac, like four or five bucks a month and you can be entertained however many hours you want like there, there's no there's no end to that so i would say the value of entertainment is quite inexpensive mm-hmm. now uh there, there is a difference between what kind of content you're putting in front of the audience certainly if you try to get people to pay for youtube content maybe they won't just because there's so much out there and it's already free but with anime and and anime is very premium it's you know, on tv uh, it costs a lot to make and there's a very high quality bar uh, our bet was people were willing to pay to subscribe to it. And so we, we had an ad service. We had a uh, transactional like download, the download to rent, download to own. And in beginning of 2009, we turned on our subscription model. And when we were doing our subscription business, I think the number one thing to figure out when you have a subscription business period is what is, what is the value proposition of the subscription service? And that, that's like very important. Initially, what we thought was, what is the value proposition? Well, we know that we're trying to go after super fans in the beginning, not casual users. With super fans, what do they care about? Well, there's you know, a few things they care about. They care about like quality. They care about uh, you know, ease of use. But what we found, and this is kind of what we believed as well, is number one and foremost is they cared about uh, access, immediacy of access. If yeah. you think about the, the, the analogy to when you were waiting for a torrent, you're just waiting and you're like, man, if I could pay a dollar or $2 to just get it now, that would be so awesome, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the subscription service in the beginning was really built around uh, immediacy of access. You can get this show the minute it comes out in Japan on TV, mm-hmm. get it faster than anyone else. You can play right now and um, you can talk about it with your friends at the water cooler the next day. And so that was the value proposition we focused on at the beginning. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point because nowadays it's like we're living in such a fast-paced world that people are like very reluctant to wait. So in terms of like access, you know, people want to get it right away. Um, I think the timing was also really good too because I remember (laughs) 
Remember, I used to wake up early to download it and see that it takes five to six hours to finish. <laughs> I'm like, all right, I got to get up at four, click on download, and go back mm-hmm. to sleep. By the time I wake up at 10 a.m., the anime is ready. <laughs> you know? So definitely that point. I remember that, that time period exactly. You know, yeah. you creating access for it. Of course I was going to pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> I was better, better than waiting six hours for my episode <laughs> to show up. <laughs> in terms of the the content that you guys were putting out, I'd love to know, like, when you guys first started in 2007, um, was it always your guys' intention to do, you know, anime, or did it naturally kind of trend towards that direction um, based on what the viewers wanted to see? Because I know you guys were saying, like, you were doing K-dramas, and there were J-dramas that were on there as well. Um, so I just want to love, I would love to know, like, you know, did a always was always your intention to go you know strictly anime or did it kind of just trend towards i do want to add more towards that too is that the community you built up the very beginning like did they help you make that decision or did you make that decision all right guys Mm -hmm. i'm the boss here yeah (laughs) because it's kind of like there's a really big like crunchy roll family right this this is very like camaraderie kind of based feeling Mm -hmm. and you know, we'd love to just pick your brain on like if you guys were like listening to what the viewers were seeing. Like, I'd love to see more content in this area. Mm-hmm. And if you guys took that feedback and you know made changes to Crunchyroll, mm-hmm. that's a great question. I, in the very beginning, it was Crunchyroll was a user con- contributed platform, meaning right. people upload content. Yeah, and they upload content they could normally watch here, and that included Korean dramas, J dramas. Um, various live action, a little bit of esports, And w- what we did was we, we, we tried to help facilitate a community. Mm-hmm. And we, we always felt that at least w- with, our, with ourselves, the, the, the model we were following was all the way back in college, you would wait for the latest anime episode to drop and then you would just get like the whole floor together and then just watch uh, <laughs> anime together and then you would talk about it and... <laughs> Uh, you would like speculate on who's you know what's going to happen next. Yeah. Uh, and and so and so community features really just made a lot of sense to us from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And so the you know right after we we pushed out Crunchyroll and it was serving video, the next thing we built was we built a, a form feature, and then we built um, a, like a social networking type of uh, experience. Mm-hmm. And so we 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 basically built a lot of the community features, uh, expecting that people would be using them. Because that's how we you we we were consuming anime in, re, in real life, right? And uh, what we found was that while the community features were really awesome for anime, and that was the most popular engagement, mm-hmm. it wasn't as strong in other categories. Mm-hmm. And so, even though we we obviously felt like anime was the right focus for Crunchyroll, um, that was also validated by the community and by the engagement of the community around anime. And so it was a very easy decision to say, okay, we're just going to really double down yeah. on, on, on anime. I think that the challenging part for us was not that we weren't doubling down on anime it was more uh, of, should we exclude other content from Crunchyroll mm-hmm. that wasn't anime at all? And that took actually a few years for us to kind of work through and to, to kind of figure out. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, that's really crazy. Yeah. I mean, this for me is it's a little bit more of a curiosity question. But how did you work through the licensing for all the animes? Did you fly to Japan and be like, literally door knocking all the studios and be like, hey, um, yeah, can we sign a formal contract <laughs> to make sure we're doing things legally? Or how how did you get 
Because I know in Japan there's so many anime studios, you know, like mm -hmm. how'd you get access to all the licensing and stuff? Yeah, pretty much just knocking on doors. So right after we received VC funding, and this was beginning of 2000, uh, 2008, end of 2007, we, we said, okay, well, we need to figure out our licensed content. And at that time, we were still engineers. None of us knew anything about content licensing. Yeah. And uh, I think the other engineers were a little bit better coder than I was. And so I'm like, okay, I have to go and figure out the business side. <laughs> And have a license, uh -huh. and it, it just it, it's uh, it was a very very brute force method. Yeah. The first thing I did was I looked for friends or friends of friends that I knew who did any sort of business in Japan. Mm -hmm. Contacted them to say, "Hey, who do you know in Japan?" And then <laughs> just keep, you know keep asking. And, yeah. and how I found someone who uh, has a little bit of connection to content and media, yeah. and so I then just flew out to Japan, met with him. And then he knew a friend who was uh, even more adjacent to, to entertainment. Yeah. And then that person, you know, helped introduce us to more companies. And then it's just every, every meeting we were trying to like find someone who was closer to anime until we found someone who was actually in anime. Yeah. And then we just, you know, we took that meeting. And then every, every meeting in, that we took, mm -hmm. um, this, this seems kind of awkward if you were to do it in, in the U.S. But every meeting we took, we're like, at the end of the meeting, meeting we're like, so uh, who else do you know? Can you introduce <laughs> and, and it, it's almost like if you go to I don't know, go to Google today and you you talk, you ask some Google person, uh, can you introduce us to Facebook? You know, like it just seems so naive, but it, it, it worked because anime is a pretty small, pretty close knit industry, right. and uh, people generally genuinely wanted to just introduce us to other people because mm -hmm. I think I think we're. We were interesting, we were strange, we were foreigners. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, that's how we were able to, uh, over the course of about a year, meet enough people in the anime industry mm -hmm. to then start talking shop. And uh, that was a completely separate process because mm -hmm. when we went in, it was, uh, it was like, well, uh, we actually don't license your content, but we're streaming it, surprise. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but by the way, we come with the best of intentions. We, we're, you know, we're so passionate. Mm -hmm. we, we think there's a future to building this thing on the internet. And back then there was no internet business. And we said, either, either you license us your content or we're happy to just take it all down. Uh, yeah. But if we do that, then your fans would go back to a, you know, all, all, the, all the dark places on the internet. Right, You're right. not going to be able to talk to them. You're not going to be able to um, monetize them. You're not going to be able to engage them. Mm -hmm. And so we said, we want to create a bright, well-lit place for mm -hmm. all the anime fans. And so I think with that messaging and a lot of persistence, we're able to slowly convince partners to mm -hmm. officially work with us. That's, that's amazing. Awesome. That's yeah, that's a crazy story. Yeah. And I think like a reason why they were so um, welcoming and with open arms as well, because, you know, anime was just kind of slowly in Japan, right? And they wanted more Western um, influence as well, right? Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how they, they took it and what their feedback was and were they open to, you know, bringing anime more into the Western culture? Because now you see like, anime is so like intertwined with the Western culture, mm -hmm. you know, and as opposed to back then it was m mostly in Japan, but nowadays we have like so many Americans that are like obsessed with anime. Yeah. Right. I do want to 
I do want to add the, you know, Kuhn is the Asian hustler. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's the Asian hustle entire network. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think that a big part of why it's so intertwined with Western culture is because of Crunchyroll, right? Because it is. It is All because, the credit goes to you. Yeah. Um, it's just so easy access. And, you know, whenever we think about anime, a lot of us, we think about Crunchyroll and we're able to make that distinction right mm -hmm. away. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, talk a little bit about, you know, how they were able to take in, like, what their um, opinions were and what, 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 what were their perspectives in terms of, like, bringing anime into the Western culture. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. And I don't think there's a, there's a clear answer. I think it's really just one of, it's a, it's a, it's a continuing ongoing process. Right. And I think when you talk about something as, as nuanced as, cultural phenomenons, mm -hmm. pop culture, it's something that continues to evolve. Right. And I think the, the, the backdrop to all of this was, there was a point, there was a period of time, and it's still happening now, but there's a period of time in which the only anime brought into the US was dubbed and edited. And that was because people at the time thought, well, this, this product, anime, is too too Japanese. Like, who would want to listen to Japanese audio? Mm -hmm. uh, and so all of it was edited, all of it was dubbed with English voice actors, mm -hmm. and that's the product you experience. And I think what really drove the adoption of anime is is part partially that, but a big part of it was also this underground movement of, of fans who really wanted the Japanese experience and they wanted Japanese audio. They wanted to hear what the original actor or actress's uh, performance of, of, of the show is. And um, sometimes there's something more magical about listening to uh, the, uh, listening to the, to the original audio yep. because you feel like you're getting something even more, a richer experience. When you listen to the, the English version, it just seems like, oh, it, th that's it? Like, yeah. like the, the Japanese audio feels like you're adding more to it. And this is the same for a lot of foreign, foreign content when it's brought over in, in language. Mm -hmm. and, and so uh, when, when we were doing Crunchyroll at the time, I would say it was still very much a like a like a up, uphill battle in terms of convincing others uh, that subtitles was the way to go. Uh -huh. When when people mostly were thought, well, well, of course you just localize it and and uh -huh. dub it. Why would you want to just do subtitles? And we said, no, this is the authentic experience. This is what something like fans really really wanted to do. Yeah. Like imagine imagine if you were watching uh, like. Avengers or listening to music, but all of it was translated into a different language. Like that just seems not as natural. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think over time, what that that's done is created a, a fan base of millions, tens and you know, hundreds of millions of people over the, all over the world that appreciates the content for, for what it was not, not a localized version, but the content itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of those people grow up uh, and they themselves become creators. And so that I think has a, a really powerful effect on um, make, make bringing anime into the pop culture. Right. Uh, and, and, and same, same way from any other uh, foreign, uh, foreign content, like, like, like uh, K-pop. Like that's another great example of not in language content that's uh, well embraced as part of the pop culture. Yeah. Uh, so there's a separate thread that I think you brought up about what does it mean for creators, right? Mm -hmm. In Japan, the, in the first few years, the people we talked to were mostly business people. 
And they're really more interested in expanding the business side of anime, meaning how do you um, monetize anime better? Uh, how do you find more partners to distribute? How do you find people who can reach more audience globally? There's a different conversation about what happens on the creative side. On the creative side, I think it's really one where uh, it's, it's kind of tough to not be a, uh, it has to be more of a collaboration project. Mm-hmm. If you were a Japanese creator, and you know, you're clearly influenced by uh, domestic anime content, you're clearly influenced by Disney, uh, how else is there a way to collaborate? Well, there's not a lot of great ways to collaborate beyond that. What you're really looking for is someone not from Japan who has a non-Japanese local uh, sensibility mm-hmm. who you can work with to make the product different, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're, all a, we're all a function of the, the environment and our upbringings. And so what you know is kind of what you know. So for someone in Japan to have not grown up outside of Japan, to make something super international is kind of like it happens by chance, right? Yeah. So if you were to want to do it in a more systematic way, the, I think the, one of the only ways to do it is to create more fans globally, have those fans grow up, uh, understanding why anime is so powerful and what the sensibilities of anime are, mm-hmm. but to still be grounded in the U.S. or Europe or China or wherever, and then to want to create anime themselves, but not the anime that's you know created in Japan, but more towards fans like them. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Wow, that's that's a really great answer. You know, yeah. I do I want to trace back a little bit too. I think for entrepreneurs just starting out, there's a lot of pride and ego nowadays. It's like you don't want to do the nitty gritty stuff. But you have to go out there and you have to door knock. Get yourself dirty because yeah. the huge fantasy right now is that like you raise a lot of money, you just hire someone else to do it. But you kind of, when you first start out, you kind of have to do that part to really understand like what are the true business needs, what the customers really want. Like these are details that you can totally miss out on if you outsource it and you hire someone else to do it, especially as a founder. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and you know, from I love listening to your stories. Like, hey, um, I talked to so and so. Do you know so and so? That's, that's the type of person I am originally before Asian Hustle Network and everything else. Because before this, I was always curious. I'm, like, I'm in real estate. So I'm like, so do you know a lender? Do you know a property manager? Do you know a developer? And it, it's crazy how people are very open to sharing these resources. Okay. So you really have to like put yourself in a position where you, you have to ask. If you don't ask, you never get. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's something that I guess in Asian culture we don't typically do because yeah. that's the scene as a, as a weakness, you know, mm-hmm. like why are you, why are you asking for help? Why are you asking? Cause you don't know. Yeah. Because in, in actuality, these qualities will help push you forward even more. Mm-hmm. You kind of have to lose the Asian-ness a little bit <laughs> you know? and put yourself in a growth mindset that, Hey, you can, you can find these resources and to link it back to Asian hustle network. One of the biggest value adds at our network is that we, we as a network want to connect you to the right resources. You know, you're looking for, for lenders, you're looking for VCs, you're looking for someone in this industry, just post inside the group and you'll find that person in the industry. And it always surprises us because we never really intended to be this way, how collaborative people really are. You know, it totally blows our mind that the values that we have as Asians growing up are similar. It doesn't matter if you're in the United States, China, Australia, Canada, Europe, anywhere in the world. You have these core Asian values that you're polite, you're, you're open to help each other, you have a commonality, 
And once people see that, it's like, hey, I want to help you succeed too because mm-hmm. let's be real, you're, you're like family to me. We have a lot, of, a lot of things in common, you know? And it's really cool seeing that unfold within the Asian community. Um, you, you have any other questions? Um, I guess I would love to know, you know, what would you say to someone who is trying to be an entrepreneur? You know, you've been an entrepreneur for so long now and you have a vast experience in that field. And, you know, we have a lot of listeners, or we're going to have a lot of listeners to this podcast who are aspiring entrepreneurs. Um, we just would love to pick your brain on what kind of advice you could give to aspiring entrepreneurs who would be listening to this podcast. I think it comes down to some of the key lessons that I've learned. And one of the most important things I think is being willing to roll up, roll up your sleeves and to go and just do the work. and and do the hard work Mm -hmm. and i think that's what separates a lot of ideas from 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 actual companies there's plenty of great ideas out there what really it comes down to is execution and i think execution starts with the the entrepreneur or the founder like they need to be willing to roll their sleeves and to do the work any any work whatever work it takes to get to the next step Right. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people miss that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's actually easier today to do that than many years ago, just mm-hmm. because the tools are so readily available. Right. 10 years ago, you were, if you were to start an internet company, you literally had to have a development team. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you can't, you can't, you, there's nothing you can do mm-hmm. today. You can find like tons of products on the internet that lets you, without coding piece together a internet service or uh, whatever, like there's just so many ways that you can be an entrepreneur without even needing to worry about coding. You just need to come up with a great idea and you need to be willing to go hustle. Mm -hmm. And so I just think first and foremost, just focus on like execution and just getting, getting, getting it done. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. I guess I just want to add one more part to it. Without Kuhn creating Crunchyroll, I think we talked about this at the beginning, before the podcast. I don't know, without, without him creating Crunchyroll, I think I wouldn't even be here right now because I feel like most of my life lessons are shaped from watching a lot of anime. <laughs> you, yeah. know, you know, a lot of things that my, my parents would teach me is that you have to stay in isolation. You can't help someone else because they'll overtake you. Whereas if I, when I grow up, like, for example, I grew up watching Naruto, I was like, you know, you, you can work together, yeah. family, and all that stuff. And I didn't realize how much of a positive effect anime had in my life until I was giving a speech recently. And I realized that most of the lessons that I was telling people is because I was watching a lot of anime. <laughs> I, I do find a lot of inspiration from anime as well. I find myself, like, dreaming about certain episodes or, like, I'll be writing in my journal and I'll be like, what would this character do? You know? <laughs> it's just very inspirational to me. So. Yeah. yeah. So credit to you a lot. Without you creating, you know, Crunchyroll, yeah. I wouldn't even be here talking to you. Thank you. Right <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Kim. Yeah, appreciate it. Well, yeah. Uh, how can our listeners find out more about you and reach out to you? Just find me on uh, LinkedIn and ping me. Um, I'm I'm available. I'm um, I'm always willing to be helpful. And um, uh, let me know how I can help. Definitely. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for being yeah. on the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Yeah. It was super fun. We yeah. appreciate it. And. Yeah, we'll definitely yeah. be chatting again pretty soon. It's great to have you on. My here. pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you.
Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much. <laughs>